Good morning and welcome to breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. We want to start by, as always, acknowledging that we're broadcasting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Pay our respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any Indigenous listeners who are tuning into the program today. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land and the effects of colonisation are not only historic, um, but they are enduring into today in contemporary times. And I also want to acknowledge that it is NADOC week, uh, and the theme is get up, stand up, show up. Um, and we'll be talking about some ways you can show up later on in the show today. So thanks for joining us. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Jacob. Good morning, Ella. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Here on your delightful community radio station 3cr that's right 855 am and it's good to have you back in the studio with me i got a bit lonely the last couple of weeks <laughs> yeah yeah um i'm so sorry for my my absence but the um the tides of the changing weather seem to bring about some flu which mm. i believe i'm not the only one who's uh fallen to unfortunately claudia uh can't be with us today because she is also feeling a bit under the weather Yep. Yeah, that's right. I think sickness has spread since we've all been locked down and our immune systems have gotten weaker. Um, this year has been rough for a lot of us, I think. Oh, we're all on the brink of collapse, aren't we? Yes. So you're here now looking sprightly. <laughs> yeah. And, and don't I love joining you at this early hour of yes. the morning? <laughs> How is your... How's your life been these past weeks? Yeah, it's been good. Um, what have I been up to? Um, just enjoying the sunny days, I think. It's obviously been extremely cold, but I think we've had some good weather the last week of clear skies, been going for some more walks, that kind of thing. Um, how about you, Jacob? Sensational. Well, <laughs> I actually have been involved in a very exciting program, um, the YMCA Youth Parliament Victoria program, actually, where I was a, a youth press gallery journalist. Um, so I've been reporting on a couple of teams of young people. Um, if you're not familiar with the program, basically, it brings together over 120 young people from across regional and metropolitan Victoria, and they develop bills over a six-month period, and then they debate those bills in the Victorian Parliament House um, in a thrilling display of debating and public speaking skills. And these debates are chaired by actual MPs uh, who, who sit in the Victorian Parliament. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's been oh, a really cool. <laughs> interesting week, like sitting in the press gallery, um, doing a lot of live tweeting, making those Instagram graphics that you see. And I also have some exciting news. I pitched my very first written article um Ooh. and so i'll be being and it was successful pitch Yay! so i'll be being <laughs> so how do i tell this story um yeah and I'll, I'll also be um 
curating a little audio package as well because I think it would be unjust to say I'm a, a press gallery journalist reporting <laughs> on a youth parliament and not bring it to 3CR because we're all about empowering voices that don't normally get uh, a chance to go on the airwaves. So prepare yourselves next week um, for a little package on young people taking to Parliament House. Can't wait. Jacob, the published journalist. Oh, <laughs> to be published. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. And um, your article was on the Youth Parliament? Yeah. Um, so it's it's on one of the teams that are uh, participating in the Youth Parliament. They're a team from the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. Um, so Dandenong, Cranbourne, that kind of area. And they're Historically, the first all-African-Australian team to participate in youth parliament, and they brought this really uh, fantastic bill that aims to tackle systematic racism in the education system through a teacher training program, Um, and they also want to mandate more African uh, community advisors and things, and they're very much motivated by their own experiences of uh, racism in the schooling system, so... Uh, obviously it it doesn't come from a, a very good place, but they were all very inspired, I think, to make sure the next generation of uh, African-Australian and, and people of colour um, students who walk through those doors uh, don't have the same experiences as them. Cool. And what age are we talking for Youth Parliament? Uh, anywhere from 16 to 25. Oh, what dynamic uh, young people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Dynamic. It's interesting. Young people seem to be a very, uh, a bipartisan kind of area. Like everyone wants to get behind it. Like liberal, labor, whatever. Everyone's like, yes, come through and debate. Well, what happens to us when we get older? We're less able to... <laughs> we're less bipartisan, yes. I feel. We're, we're less useful. Keep it separate. <laughs> That's it. Oh, well, we'll look forward to hearing it next week, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and I know you're bringing some really interesting topics to the show today. Do you want to tell our listeners what's in store? Yeah. Um, so yeah, first up, we're going to have a segment from Claudia, who, as I said, sadly cannot be with us today. Um, but she's prepared a segment which was recorded um, at a webinar earlier this year. So it was held by a Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, who are a big fan of here on 3CR. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in the lead up to Invasion Day. They were talking about self-determination, deaths in custody and systemic racism. Um, so we're going to hear the voices of four prominent First Nations speakers uh, discussing some of the most important questions on justice, um, which will be very timely for today's NADOC week theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on in the show, I'm going to do an interview. Um, so I'll be speaking with Selena. Um, she's the regional producer with The Moth. So for those of you who don't know, The Moth is a non-profit organisation which is all about storytelling, really. Uh, so they hold live events. Uh, they're based in New York, but they've got an Australian chapter um, where you can basically yeah get up and tell a story. Um, there's usually a theme on the night. I believe they all have a five-minute limit. Um, and, yeah, it's just this really cool experience hearing people tell really real stories about their lives. Um, and I think, yeah, it's really powerful. So she's going to tell us about the Australian chapter and their upcoming Grand Slam event. It should be good, being held in Melbourne next week. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Thank you to Claudia for bringing that 
segment to us. Yeah, thanks, Claudia. Um, <laughs> and thank you to Ella for also bringing that segment to us. And what have you got for us, Jacob? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you may or may not know it is Disability Pride Month this July. Now, I don't know if this is something that's really celebrated widely in Australia, um, but I thought it would still be worth bringing to our attention. So I am bringing a young disability advocate. Her name is Jessie Hooper. Um, she uses a wheelchair and she is um, involved in a number of different leadership initiatives. I actually met her through this youth parliament program um, and she's going to be coming on and speaking about uh, disability, disability pride, what it all means, uh, what are some of the biggest issues facing disabled people today. Um, so, yeah, it's it's going to be an exciting interview. And I think disability isn't really an area that um, we've unpacked a whole lot on this show. So I'm excited to bring these perspectives. Yeah, very cool. Can't wait. Mm. Excelente. Well, we are going to play this um, community service announcement and we'll be right back after this. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants included grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back, 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob <laughs> and Ella. And I believe Ella has a very special song for us to play. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to hear a song from Carissa Nalyu. Um, this is Ocean Air. Ocean blue, cloudy eyes, 
Welcome back, 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Ella. And you just heard Carissa Nalu with Ocean Air. And now we're going to go to our segment from Claudia. Um, So we have a proud history of getting up, standing up and showing up. Um, And this week is NAIDOC week around Australia. And our focus is celebrating the contributions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and highlighting historical and enduring injustices in our system. So we're going to listen to the voices of four prominent First Nations speakers discussing some of the most important questions on justice. What does self-determination mean for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? And how do we end deaths in custody and systemic racism in this country? So Claudia has put together this segment for our listeners and we're excited to share it with you this morning. Good morning, 3CR Breakfast listeners. This is Claudia. I wanted to let listeners know that the content following does centre on some difficult subjects and may be triggering for some listeners. For any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tuning in, please note there is going to be discussion of loss of life through suicide, deaths in custody and the ongoing traumas caused by the impacts of colonisation. If you feel these subjects may affect you, you may wish to tune out for the next segment. But if you are staying with me, and I do hope you will, I do hope you find the discussion illuminating. Uh, We've got some great speakers to share. If it does raise any issues or concerns during the broadcast or afterwards, uh, we would encourage you to get in touch with Lifeline 131114. Or if you're an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, you can call Yarning Safe and Strong. That's a helpline run by the Victorian Health Service. And the number there is 1800 959 563. 1800 959 563. So in my segment this morning, we're going to be having a listen to some experienced speakers who got together at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services Annual Invasion Day webinar, and they uh, had a chat about some of the really big issues facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, self-determination, systemic racism, ending Aboriginal deaths in custody, and protest rights. So lots of justice issues. And they highlighted the fact that last year, 2021, was the landmark year for deaths in custody. As we know, it was the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission, which had taken place back in 1991. I can actually remember that. I was in my last year of law school in Western Australia, and I actually did an assignment on the report. Uh, So I remember it well, and the finding that the large numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who were dying in custody was a direct uh, result of the over-representation of them in uh, prisons. So clearly highlighting that there needed to be things addressed on both sides, what was happening inside, but also really highlighted to me that if you weren't in there to start with, then you wouldn't be subjected to those factors. So making changes that helped people stay in their communities and stay safe outside the system was really important. And I think that's why last year was really difficult to reflect on that 30 years had passed and 
while a number of reforms that were recommended had taken place, the number of lives lost continues to rise. And since 1991, when the report was handed down, there's now been more than 500 precious lives lost. We're going to hear a bit from Narita Waite. She's the CEO of Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or VALS, as it's called for short. And she's going to be hosting the discussion. Um, I'm Narita Waite. Um, I'm the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. I've been lucky enough to work across many areas of the law for VALS, which has given me a front row seat to the disastrous and horrific effects our community suffered due to invasion and colonisation to this day. Last year sadly marked the 30th anniversary of Rikidik, and rather than seeing vast improvements in justice and corrections, we surpassed 500 deaths. VALS represents the families of many Aboriginal people who died in custody. Many of these factors are repeated over and over again. Things such as lack of equivalent healthcare services, harsh bail and parole systems, over-policing of Aboriginal people, and poor oversight and accountability mechanisms in the justice system are common features when an Aboriginal person dies in custody. That was Narita Waite from Fals. She's joined by the co-founder of Warriors for Aboriginal Resistance, Mariki Onis, activist, writer and community organiser for Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, Tarnine Onis-Williams, and Marcus Stewart, who's the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. And what I liked about this discussion is that we, we hear four voices, four informed opinions on these important subjects. And the very first question that's put to the panel, um, we're going to take a listen to now, and that is what is self-determination? What's really happening when we talk about self-determination? First question um, for you all to start us off is, governments and institutions often say they support self-determination for Aboriginal Islander people, but there are very few examples of where it has been done well. What does effective Aboriginal self-determination look like and how do we make it a reality? Uh, well, firstly, um, Narita, I just want to extend my acknowledgement of country too and acknowledge the Wurundjeri or Wurrung country where I am today and acknowledge their elders past and present, but also acknowledge the work Val's historically has done and, and currently does uh, supporting our mob. I think, um, I think there's one fundamental issue when we think about this notion of government and self-determination you know, if we're talking about self-determination in the context of the United Nations Declara Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, Article 3, our right to representation to make decisions that impact our lives, that's not a government function. Government can't impose their interpretation to what they see fit to be self-determination. And quite frankly, I find it offensive that they continually use that term imposed on whatever initiative they do. Um, I think if we're talking self-determination, that is Aboriginal people making decisions on the, the issues, policy, legislation that impacts their lives. Um, that's why we've seen a lack of what they'd consider self-determination initiatives across the board, because they misrepresent what self-determination is. It's not um, non-Indigenous lawmakers sitting in a parliament making legislative decisions on issues that impact our lives. It's... It's us doing it, even in a policy context from a, you know, a departmental point of view. Um, I, think there's, I think there's a fundamental issue of how government perceive and try to utilise this notion of self-determination. And self-determination should be Aboriginal control over Aboriginal issues. That'd be my, my take on it. Thank you, Marcus. Maruki or Tani, do you have anything to add? Um, <clears throat> 
I think self-determination is, you know, one of those political words that can just turn into a buzzword that can be stretched and used for the whoever's agenda of the day um, is tabled. But for me, it's about sovereignty and it's about land back. And, um, you know, and I don't want to see, um, you know, the works of, you know, Kevin Gilbert and um, Malcolm X talks about self-determination. It, it can't simply be watered down to our welfare needs. It's about our right to determine what happens over our lives and our country ultimately. And, you know, I think in my own personal opinion, what really true self-determination could be and, and might be is that that we treat you as sovereigns in this country um, and that, you know, we have the treaty partner, but we are the, the primary um, partner in the treaty making and that the settler state um, has to partner with us under our conditions. So that for me is true self-determination. I think that it can be stretched to whatever, you know, if you asked um, John Smith or whoever in government uh, what self-determination means, they'll talk to you about the policies that they're delivering and, and, the, and the welfare approach, um, um, which, you know, I mean, I'm not in critical of, I'm just, I'm just um, pointing to how the word can be stretched to different meanings. And I think that the importance is to keep the, the focus on the struggle for sovereignty and, the, and, it, and it's kind of a verb. It's not really um, a destination um, because can't really tangibly think about what it looks like. But, you know, what does it feel like? And anyway, I could go on. You're fine, Ricky, but just um, your comments made me think that, you know, if we look at self-determination, it can mean, like you said, there's different concepts for different people, but also the way it can be implemented is very different for people. Um, what does self-determination look for those who are incarcerated, for example, um, those who are poverty-stricken, um, struggling with substance and mental health? Um, does anybody have any thoughts about how we might tailor self-determination um, for those very vulnerable cohorts? Well, I want to, make, I want to talk about two things. Um, so I'll touch on that in a second, Rita. But I did want to make a point that when I was on the Aboriginal Interim Treaty Working Group, sorry, it's a mouthful, I was very critical about them using the self-determination policy as well. I think that's something that lots of, like, the grassroots organisations and, like, grassroots activists had used. And I really do think it, it was co-opted a bit from the government and using it in a way, like Ricky said, to do funding and, like, for welfare. So... I am very critical about the government's um, approach to using it. And I think that in terms of, like, self-determination for people in our community, I know that, like, our organisations and the people in our community, we do a lot of that work already. We already look after each other. And I think that, you know, COVID has really, like, showed me a lot um, about how much community look after each other. I know that when we were even isolating for a week because my partner had had COVID. Um, we had community going out and getting our stuff and going grocery shopping or, like, bringing sweet treats, you know. Um, Ricky made us some cake. Like, it's just people, like, help each other out. We do do it. And I think that Blackfellas are always doing the work and we need to, we need to sometimes be easy on ourselves because we do go above and beyond and like more than so many other people and more than other communities that I know like we do go hard and I'm really proud of all of the work that we do for people who are vulnerable. Um, one of the questions that has come through is um, in what ways might Aboriginal allies respectfully contribute, engage with or support the work towards self-determination? 
particularly through effective advocacy and policy change and resource allocation. Um, Marcus, I'm thinking given your work and your current role, that might be a perfect question for you. Uh, thanks, Narita. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a good question. And if we go back to your earlier question as well as what does self-determination look like within a you know, correctional setting or something, it's, and if we take a step back and think about a correctional setting where it's, you're told when you get fresh air, when you eat, when you see daylight, like it's, it's a crazy environment um, enforced by the state. And so I think it fundamentally comes down to is we've had a civil service sector, our ACO sector, that have driven, you know, change in Victoria for a long time. And if we think about, you know, what the work the Assembly doing as far as treaty and our advocacy for truth, we've just been able to build on decades of advocacy and activists um, to, to, to get it to where it is. And so we see... Um, we see allies playing a critical role in helping transform the systems. I think, you know, people often talk about the systems broken. Is it really, or is it working how it was built to work? Uh, I remember someone telling me once, um, and I found, I found the comment interesting and, you know, they were talking about the clothing, closing the um, gap report that comes out every 12 months and, their interpretation was, and they were a data expert, an Aboriginal data expert, had said that, isn't this just a pulse check to make sure the colony is working as it was set up to work? And I think that's an insightful comment uh, when we think about systems and structures. And that's why we, we built on those decades of, of activism for a truth-telling process. So we could fundamentally understand how these systems and structures disproportionately impact our people. I mean, we know, but our allies don't. And government are happy to nurture the status quo, keep things as they are, minimally invest in our services to pretend that they're doing it so they resolve a political issue, not a fundamental issue of where we see growth in overrepresentation uh, in the criminal justice system or child protection. So. Our allies play a critical role in standing with us and walking with us on um, on these journeys. We see treaty as a as a long term reform piece that we can reimagine our systems and structures, but that doesn't resolve what happens today, and it doesn't resolve what will happen tomorrow when the statistics are dramatically growing for our mob out there. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of 
a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. If I have my tongue, 500 languages I would sing. To you. This is Monica Jasmine Cairo. I'm a proud Gunai Kurnai, Gunishmara and Mukjaiwait woman. I'm a spoken word poet, actor and musician and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. And I love Community Radio because it is about representation and accessibility for all peoples of all walks of life. And I must have a home somewhere I belong. If you've just tuned in, uh, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 855 AM on the dial. And I'm your host for this segment. It's Claudia, and I welcome our listeners back. And we've been hearing from a panel of speakers from the 2022 Victorian Aboriginal Legal Services Invasion Day webinar. They've been discussing the meaning of self-determination. Among them uh, is Marcus Stewart, He's the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. And he posed a provocative question about Aboriginal justice. He asked, is the system broken or is it merely working the way it was designed? It's one to reflect on when we uh, look at colonial institutions, how little uh, real change is occurring within the, the, the fabric of those institutions. We're going to take a break now for some music, but don't go away. We'll be hearing more from the Val's Invasion Day panellists. And when we come back, uh, we'll be hearing their views on how to tackle systemic racism. But first, here's a song, uh, Nathan May with Lost. Everywhere that I go in this life, it looks so dark And the people telling lies to one another, can we trust? All the moments that I've had, tearing me down I'm afraid to look inside their mirror, reflections hurt and I'm lost, lost on a train to somewhere And I'm lost, lost on a plane to somewhere To nowhere, oh I don't in my 
And that was Nathan May with Lost, a track from the First Sounds album, Volume 1. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Claudia. And just a note for listeners that the content we're discussing this morning is serious and contains references to deaths of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including suicide. If this could be triggering for you, you may wish to wait a while before tuning in. For those of you uh, staying with the conversation, we've been listening to a discussion hosted by Narita Waite, CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or VALS. She's joined by Tarnine Onus-Williams, Mariki Onus, and Marcus Stewart, co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. And they've been discussing a variety of justice issues. They've just expressed their views on the question of what is self-determination. And now we're going to hear them respond to another big question. How can we undo systemic racism in Australia? Narita foregrounds this question by highlighting the dreadful statistics from 2021, where, as I said, the number of deaths in custody, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody, since the Royal Commission handed down its report in 1991, surpassed 500 lives last year. Excruciating. And then another statistic, which is equally chilling, was that in Victoria last year, deaths by suicide of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people rose by 75%. It's a really, really devastating upward trend. So we're going to hear from Mariki Onus 
first and then Tarnine Onus-Williams from the panel. And they're going to talk about their views on what should change. How can you actually dismantle systemic racism in Australia that often works to perpetuate cycles of disadvantage and lead to poor outcomes like this? And in answering that question, are there any other examples that you think more people should know about? I'm I'm happy to speak to this and I think there's no solid answer and I really like you know when I'm reading about um abolition and um Angela Davis's work it's that we haven't ever really ever seen freedom in a tangible sense it's something that we have to reimagine and you know and I've been doing a little bit of reading on emergent strategy and I really like you know some of the stuff that comes out of that it's like just to focus on what we want and build the future of what we want to look like instead of you know I and a lot of abolitionists say that um, abolition doesn't start inside the prison walls. It starts by building communities where people don't need prisons to exist. Um, and I think that there is no, t- we haven't actually seen what liberation or freedom looks like for Aboriginal people in this country. And that's why I really praise the work of Black artists because they're the ones imagining and creating the visuals and singing the songs and singing the songs of freedom for us. And so I know it sounds a bit, it's not a tangible answer, but it does exist. And I don't think you can discount what what freedom can look like if we keep dreaming and building um, in unity together um, outside of the systems of violence. And we have to accept, and I think that, you know, I would love to see institutions like VOWS and other legal institutions to really accept and embrace what abolition looks like in, on a policy framework. And I think Sisters Inside do, do such a fabulous work, do amazing work in that space. Um, and I think that we need to abolish prisons and that needs to be an honest, fair policy platform that we that we look to. You know, prisons do have a history of racism, that they're racist institutions to the core um, and we've learnt a lot of how we, how Australia, how Australia runs prisons is very much of the American model, which is a product of slavery. It's so. Um, if you want to talk about a tangible way of ridding racism in our societies, getting rid of prisons in our communities is a very good start. Also, can I just add to that? Um, yeah, I went, I did the Beyond the Bars NADOC program where we went in and took the radio programs into the prisons and we did a, a prison show in Port Phillip Prison and I don't I mean it's the first time I'd ever been in that place and it still it still stays with you just standing inside the walls of that place. It's an extremely violent place. And through that program I went to see a few different prisons, but that one, that prison is a privately run prison, which um is is an atrocity in itself, but they have to work uh, for $8 a day um, or their living standards will drop. And, you know, they have to work for companies external to the prison, like washing um, linen for um, other companies. So the interlink of um, capitalism within the prison system today that creates cheap or close to free labour, you can't say that $8 a day is cheap labour. That's almost free. That's slavery in my opinion um and so there is slavery in victoria um that that the prison systems rely on to create money for victoria to to, to exist so i think that we have to really you know it'd be really good to see um vows or the treaty to do a body of work on this and who's who's making money off of, of black slavery in victoria i think we start there if you want to destroy racism 
I maybe I maybe should have gone first because that's really hard to follow. As I said earlier, treaty we see as a vehicle to reimagine what those systems and structures look like. And if I think about my time, um, well, I worked in corrections for a period of time when the bail reform was happening and you look at the impact that that's had and the attitude internally back then was tick and flick. We, we go about our business tick and flick. That's just like, you know, we were just really token in there trying to create change and getting nowhere. Um, but it was really insightful working there as well because you see how much is invested in that tertiary end. And that's why we're not seeing outcomes. The investment needs to be in keeping families together um, and supporting and strengthening families. I mean, that's a critical body of my work, you know, working as a therapist. And, um, and I think that's the failure of this status quo system that people are, and governments are proud to be tough on crime. All they're saying is we're proud to tear Aboriginal families apart mm. um, on the basis of winning votes that, um, you know, our lives aren't as important as holding power, maintaining power. And that's why truth-telling was so critical because it has to pull apart how exactly these systems are disproportionately impacting us. We need our allies to understand what this does because it's horrific. Sorry, Ricky. No, no. I mean, I think just to go on that, and one of the fears that I have with treaty um, is... And we've seen it in the US, examples of it in the US, where we just replicate the systems of harm, but just get black hands to do it with less money. And I think I would love to see through the treaty uh, a transforming of the system that Aboriginal and all people can interact with. Because, you know, you see examples in Aotearoa where the Māori system transformation is actually a better system for the settlers to experience as well. So... I don't see it as just an Aboriginal solution or problem. This is the, these systems are harmful for everybody. That was Narita White, Mariki Onus, Tarneen Onus Williams, and Marcus Stewart speaking at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service Invasion Day panel discussion. So, uh, just to wrap up once again, if today's discussions have raised any issues or concerns for you, please get in touch with Lifeline. 131114. The Suicide Callback Service is available on 1300 659 467. And for any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening, if you want to reach out, uh, Yarning Safe and Strong is a helpline run by the Victorian Health Service. And you can reach someone there on 1800 959563. That's 1800-959563. I'm Claudia and that's all from me this morning, but stay tuned for more on 3CR. Welcome back, 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Claudia. And we just heard a webinar run by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service on self-determination, deaths in custody and systemic racism. Yeah, and I think now we're going to go to a quick song. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Selena Brennan from The Moth, uh, Australian chapter. Um, but in the meantime, uh, here's Alanita with Red.
when this spoke dim red light when i woke told universe you will never see me broke i bled when this spoke dim red light when i woke told universe you will never see me broke i bled when this spoke dim red light when i woke told universe you will never see me broke
Welcome back to 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast with myself, Jacob, and Ella. Good morning. And um, now we're going to hear more about The Moth, uh, which is a non-profit organization dedicated to storytelling. Um, so they run open mic story slams, community and educational programs, and they've released four books. Um, I got to know them a few years ago now um, through their podcast where they create and release some of their best stories from recent times. Um, and yeah, I really love The Moth. I think one of the reasons I love radio so much is because it's all about sharing it experiences, um, whether it's hearing something you recognize that helps you sort of understand or put meaning in your own life better, or just hearing something completely different, which helps you understand an experience different to yours. I think it can be really powerful. Um, and I think the moth is essentially this in its rawest form. Um, so I'm excited to hear more about the moth's upcoming Grand Slam event in Melbourne. And we're joined now by the moth's regional producer for Melbourne, Selena Brennan. Good morning and welcome to 3CR, Selena. Thank you. Hi, Ella. Um, you sound like a great ambassador for the moth. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a job for you. <laughs> um, now, thanks for getting up nice and early for us on a Wednesday, Selena. I just, um, as you said, gave a good intro for the moth. Could you tell us a little more about the history of the moth and how it came about? Yeah, so it started in uh, America in um, 25 years ago, so it's just... Um, celebrating its silver anniversary this year. Um, and I think it actually started with a group of friends actually just, you know, gathering together and telling stories by a porch light. And I think that's where the moth came from, the moth, you know, being attracted to the light. And uh, so it's grown from there. And it has lots of different um, programs and things. But the one that we've got here is the Story Slam, which you just mentioned. And the moth's mission is, um, stated mission is to celebrate the commonality and diversity of human experience through the art and craft of true personal storytelling, which sounds very lofty, <laughs> but it's actually really simple. It's, it's like what you said, you know, it's recognising that as humans, stories are how we connect um, and they're ways of sharing our truth with, with others. Um, so, yeah, we've got the Moth Story Slam that happens every month in Melbourne. Um, there are actually um, 28 Story Slams that happen every month, but there's only two of them that happen outside of the United States. So there's one in London and then we've got one here in Melbourne, so we're very lucky. Um, and that happens on the first Wednesday of every month at the Howler, uh, sorry, at Howler in Brunswick. Um, which means we probably should be having one tonight, but we're actually not this month because we've got our big Grand Slam happening next uh, Monday, um, and that's going to be held at the National Theatre in St Kilda, which we're pretty excited about. Yeah, very exciting. Um, and tell us more about the the monthly slams. What What's it like on the night and who can tell stories? How does it work? Like event, so anyone can come and put their name in the hat. So people come in if they, they um, want to tell a story, they come and sign up, and then we select ten names from the hat uh, at random. So you know, there's no guarantee that your your name will get pulled out of the hat um, to tell the story. Um, but uh, and there's also no pressure <laughs> to put your name in the hat. So a lot of people will uh, are regular attendees at the slams. Um, and have never told a story and intend to never tell a story. 
but actually the moth audiences are just as vital a component of the of the slams and and add to the magic of it because it's a really beautiful safe supportive vibe um at every slam that we have which um is a really lovely thing i, I love to see people who've never been and then at the end of the night seeing the effect that it's had on them as they leave it's it's a really really special thing so um we've been at howler um since 2015 um and it's fantastic venue so they've got a, a theatre out the back there that can host up to nearly 200 people I think um, so we had an, a hiatus of course um, due to COVID so we've just started up slams again this year had our first one in February um, and so our numbers are sort of growing each month and you know people are really happy to be um, back and able to have that that um, opportunity to tell and hear stories again live which is great yeah um, I imagine so, a lot of yeah. people have got stories saved up from the last couple of years that they've been oh, uh, yeah. waiting for an yeah. audience for <laughs> absolutely um and so when people turn up to um tell a story we've already announced the theme of the night um well in advance so some people prepare their story beforehand um and then other people um will tell the story off the cuff so we don't mind, whichever, um, as long as it is a structured story. So, you know, it's got a beginning, a middle and an end. And it's not a comedy stand-up routine. It's, it, you know, it's not a poetry slam. It's actually a story. And the stories need to be uh, five minutes long. And they're true stories about themselves from their own life. Um, and we just have, you know, some guidelines around the do's and don'ts of telling a story, the moth. But it's mostly, you know, the don'ts are... It's all about being respectful um, and inclusive, so no awful isms or phobias, etc. Yeah, I was um, having a read of the rules before I spoke to you today, actually. They all seem very fair. And yeah, as you said, um, it's not a stand-up comedy, though we should point out a lot of them are really funny or heartfelt. Um, it just has to be, yeah, in the name of a good story. Um, is there a particular kind of um, person who usually tells stories? Like, is it usually really extrovert people or do you get a real mix? Oh, we get a real mix. So there's some people where you know, you can tell, oh, yeah, you're the person at the party that <laughs> holds court and, you know, <laughs> it's known as a yarn teller. Um, and then there's other people where, you know, sometimes people are visibly uh, nervous because, you know, you are getting up on stage in front of the microphone and also I didn't mention there, you, you can't bring notes up, so it's... it's um, it's um, not supported by being able to look down and read something, um, but that makes it more engaging. Um, and some people are really, yeah, it's a huge thing for them to get up, but to see people afterwards, it's kind of euphoric when you when you do it um, because you're pushing through a fear. And also, you know, it's five minutes of uninterrupted time where people hearing what you have to say and and because they're true stories as well I think there's an added dimension to it there you know sometimes they're quite raw um sometimes they're you know really revealing um uh topics for people um and then you know for some people it's it's not it's more of a they like to entertain and so um it, it might be you know less less of a story that um sort of tugs at your heartstrings or or um, 
you know, might make you go away and, and think about something. But, but you know, we, we can cater, we cater really for um, all the whole spectrum of storytelling. And, and because it's open mic, we don't know what we're going to get. So the stories aren't vetted beforehand. Um, you know, we call the name out and then we're, we're relying on people to, um, uh, to, you know, stay within those guidelines when they're telling their story. Um, and we also score the stories um, so people in the audience can volunteer to be judging teams. So the stories are, are scored out of 10. Um, not really about the scoring, though, but the scores mean that we get a winner at the end of the night and then the winner um, goes into our Grand Slam, which is our big championship, which normally is held once a year. Ah, okay, yeah, I didn't realise everyone scored. Is that like a public score? That could be um, a, quite daunting, I imagine, for the storytellers. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, um, yeah, the, the judging teams will hold up their scores, um, you know, like 8.6 or whatever it be. Um, and we have guidelines for the judges as well. So, you know, when I'm briefing judges, the first thing I say is remember to be kind because it takes a lot of guts to get up and tell a story, especially a true one. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, I've been a storyteller before I was a producer and it, it can be um, distracting <laughs> um, and you can get a little bit invested in the scores, but actually they don't matter because I've found over time, you know, the, the stories that resonate with people or that, you know, people will come and say, I still remember that story that you told about blah, blah, blah. Not necessarily a story that won on the night. So the judges are just, you know, it's arbitrary. They're just members of the audience who, who um, put their hand up to be a judge. Yeah, and absolutely. I think the whole audience's um, um, opinion, anyway. And hopefully, what people get out of it when they're telling the story, you know, is bigger than what was my score. It's more about I feel so good that I got that story out, or wow, when when I'm, you know. At intermission, someone came and bought me a drink and told me that they could really relate to my story or they were really impressed with my story or whatever. I think it's more about those connections that happen while people are telling the story because it's almost tangible, you can feel it, but also afterwards in the community that's being fostered. So, you know, lots of people have made friends um, just through the moth. I've made heaps of friends <laughs> over um, the years that, you know, I never would have met them apart from the moth. And, and you're finding it's... You know, people are finding their tribe, which is really nice. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, I think everyone, yeah, connects differently with different stories. Um, is there any that stand out to you in particular that have really resonated with you or any particularly powerful moment you've had? Uh, so many. <laughs> there's, there's one story um, which I think, um, because the, the mosque, you know, has a podcast as well um, where you can go. So it's called the Moth Podcast, and you can go and listen to stories there. And there's a story by a woman called Kiri Bear, K-I-R-I Bear, as in the animal, and she told a story at, at the Moth, and it was about her um, her son and um, her relationship with her son as she and her partner um, went their separate ways. And it was it was one of those ones that was heart-wrenching and I've, I've gone back and listened to it multiple times over the years because it was so well told. It was a very moving subject, but it was also really masterfully told. Um, and, and that was one where, you know, you could, 
feel the emotion um, within her, but she she was very still in control of the story. So I think that's the thing too, you know, with, with stories is that I think they say, you know, people want to see the scars, not the wounds. And that's the thing with this, with telling a story is that as the storyteller, you still need to be, you know, it's not therapy. Yeah, though <laughs> it can be therapeutic. but <laughs> That's right, yeah, there's a difference though, isn't there? So you can, you, you need to have processed it enough that you can tell the story so that you're, you're sharing the inside or the transformation or whatever it was that happened within you, um, but not in a way where you, you're not safe and therefore also the audience isn't quite safe too. Um, so so that's, a, that's a beautiful um, example of one that, I would, that always sticks in my mind and I, I would encourage people to go looking for it on the, on the podcast. Excellent. We'll check it out. And um, one of your roles with the moth is to diversify the audience and the storytellers. Um, what are some of the ways in which you're doing that? Well, I've become the regional producer this year, so it's still early days for me, but I'm really keen for our, um, our audience base and our storyteller cohort to, to really reflect the diverse society that we're living in so you know I'm starting to reach out to um, leaders in organizations of you know for um, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, people living with a disability um, asylum seekers you know I, I would like what you said at the at the start about um, you know stories either resonating with your own life or being a window into a life that you really know nothing of. That's that's what I would love to foster more of that at the moth. Um, so that, you know, we're not kind of just in an echo chamber hearing our own stories. I mean, it's wonderful to hear them, but I'd like I'd like to broaden that plat that um, that um, make make that platform available to a, a broader um, part of our community. Yeah, definitely. And um, the event on Monday is the Grand Slam event. So these are all um, people who have previously won a storytelling event. Who have we got lined up for Monday? Yeah, so um, we've got 10 storytellers uh, who've won in the past. And because we did have that break in COVID, some of these people have won back in 2018, 2019. So it's been a long time coming for them. Um, so we've got um, we've actually ended up with a, um, a, a female heavy um, list. So we've got seven women and, and three uh, men. Um, one, of, one of our storytellers was actually a co-winner of the last Grand Slam that we had in 2019. Um, so, you know, hopefully other people aren't <laughs> who are in the running aren't feeling intimidated by that. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, actually quite a few people who, who are in at this time have competed in the last couple of Grand Slams as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are people that are, are regular storytellers, but some of them, and there's, there's uh, one woman that's, um, I think there's actually quite a few people, maybe two or three of them, who they've gotten to the Grand Slam and it was actually their first appearance when they won, was their, not even just first appearance, but first attendance at the mosque. So... They've turned up, um, put their name in 
for the first time ever, told a story and won. So I think um, some of those people, it's quite a heady experience. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to find out more about those storytellers, we actually have a Facebook group called The Moth in Melbourne. Um, and I've been posting feature posts every day over the last week and a half um, to showcase each of them and remind people um, of, of why they why they won um, last time and um, how they're feeling about heading into the Grand Slam. Excellent. Well, yeah, Monday sounds like a really exciting event. I can't wait to head along. Um, and just quickly before we wrap up, how can listeners who want to get along attend this event? It's at the National Theatre in St Kilda. You can either go to the National Theatre's website or it's probably just as easy to go to the Moth's website. So themoth.org forward slash Melbourne Grand Slam. Um, and on on the um, Moth site, you can also find out um, information on upcoming slams at Howler. Um, our next one is on August the 3rd and the theme's going to be happy. Excellent. All right, and we'll post that link on our website. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Selena. Looking forward to Monday. Thank you. And that was Selena Brennan, the regional producer for the Melbourne Moth Story Slam, uh, talking to us about the power of storytelling and some of their upcoming events. Excellent. We all love a good story. Yes. And we're going to jump to a song now. This one is called Survive by Baker Boy, and it features Uncle Jack Charles. Bye. 
survivability now rest on the fact that I have to share that journey of surviving. Share it with those that are still struggling, trying to survive against the enormous odds of the vicious cycle, the merry-go-round of prisoners in and out of prison. The perpetual journey of going from one addiction to another. We just survive, we just survive. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob and Ella. And that song was called Survive by Baker Boy, featuring Uncle Jack Charles on this NADOC week, uh, where the theme is get up, stand up, show up. And I think we'll be having a chat a little towards the end of the show, more about how we can show up uh, for First Nations people. But up next, we're going to be speaking with a disability advocate, uh, the Glen Ira Young Citizen of the Year 2022. Her name is Jessie Hooper, and we're going to be speaking all about Disability Pride Month, which, if you didn't know, is happening in July. It's a month that's all about celebrating people with disabilities. Uh, so, Jessie, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. I know you must be exhausted after this week of Youth Parliament. How are you feeling? Yeah, it was a great week. Hmm. I also enjoyed myself. Um, but it is Disability Pride Month at the moment, so you are uh, someone who uses a wheelchair. What does Disability Pride mean to you? Well, you know, Disability Pride is really an interesting thing because, you know, we say pride, we say being proud of ourselves, who we are, what we achieve, everything about us, just being proud. But a lot of us in the disability community actually really struggle with being proud of ourselves. So the concept of being proud as a disabled person comes with a lot of different things. A lot of times you're being told to actually be proud of yourself just for living or doing a basic thing that anyone else can do when you may not see yourself as that should be something that you're proud of because you're just being an actual person. Um, But also... You know, why shouldn't you be proud of yourself constantly? Because look at you, look what you've had to achieve. Look at a lot of times the bias that you've had to overcome in society and often the amount of advocation that you have to do for yourself and the community. So, you know, when I go, what does disability pride mean to me? I see this, I see the extreme difficulties that I've had to like overcome to try and be myself and as a person and person with disability, but I see disability part of just being proud because, you know, I'm proud to be me. I'm proud to do what I can personally do. And I'm proud to just be a little bit more unique, even if it does come with difficulties. Mm, absolutely. I think a lot of the social narratives around people with disabilities is very much centred on struggle and on um, I guess the challenges, as you said, that you face in everyday society. So, this idea of disability pride, I think, only came around 
quite recently, or maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but maybe you can tell us why is it called Disability Pride Month, and, and where does this idea of disability pride come from? Yes, it's actually got like a really interesting history. Um, so it was actually an American celebrated month back in 1990. Um, so the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in July of that year. Um, you know, it was a major change. It led a lot of changes throughout pretty much every country because it actually prohibited discrimination against people with disabilities. You know, something that really should be common sense, but clearly we needed to have laws for some of these things. Mm. Um, you know, other countries recognise the seriousness of discrimination against people with disabilities. So other countries started implementing laws some, like Australia, started increasing their laws on discrimination and other people in, discrimina- in dis- disabled communities further started advocating and were further objecting to the discrimination, rightfully so. Um, and then something really interesting, we go to actually a few years ago and all around the world it was actually a push for the month to be specifically with people with disabilities who actually identify as queer the LGBTQIA plus community, which, you know, awesome, but it, you know, it made it a lot of sense with the symbols of the month being a rainbow colour on the flag, being held with someone in a wheelchair. But the month is fully about being, you know, it was against discrimination. So um, having someone, having just one community of, of the disability community, that was further seen as um, being discriminatory itself. So there was further pushback against that. Um, you know, so we go back to everywhere is being inclusion um, and you know, coming back to the month where it's all about everyone with a disability, where we have a lot of work still to do with disability discrimination and in the month of July currently we still have a lot more emphasis than usual from advocates and we put a lot more, um, you know, emphasis again, showing issues with society and discrimination because this is the month that people are more likely to listen to us. Mm. And what do you think are some of the bis- uh, the biggest misconceptions that non-disabled people have about yourself and other members of the disabled community? Oh, so many misconceptions. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Um you know, as a wheelchair user, I have people come up to me in a baby voice and, you know, how are you doing? And such, you know, full baby voice. They pat me on the leg or the head, um, you know, thinking that I don't have much about me. Um, yes, I'm a bit slower, but pretty much just in the walking department, I'll be honest. Um, there are misconceptions about disabilities being you know, visible, but we don't see the invisible disabilities. Um, you know, it might be the case with quite a few disabilities. We don't see autism, we don't see hearing disability, um, and you can't straight away assume things. Absolutely. I think there's been a real push to say, you know, a disability doesn't have to be something that's that's visible, it doesn't have to be something that's in front of you. Really, we should be considering... Um, anything and everything that may uh, restrict someone's ability to to operate in an able-bodied society. 
Um, and what do you see as some of the biggest issues that are facing wheelchair users such as yourself at the moment? Uh, you know, I'm going to continue saying this for a long time, but accessibility is just a big issue for all disabilities. But for me as a wheelchair user, I see this you know, as ramps, as elevators, um, you know, more often the continuous amount of stairs that mean I can't access mm. rooms or buildings, um, doors I can't open, rails, exactly the same. I hide every time I want to see animals in a zoo or, you know, see a counter when I go to a medical appointment and exactly the height I need to be looking at them. Um, doors that don't fit wheelchairs. I do have a hilarious story of getting stuck in the door, uh, yeah, stuck in the door in my wheelchair and my mm. wheel came off trying to get through the door just at, at big parliament the other week. Oh my god. That was good one. Um, <laughs> I know, was um, just going to ask on that actually because I know Jordan Steele John who is um, the only wheelchair user in the federal parliament they actually had to widen some of the doorways for him. So was it yeah. was it hard for you to get around Victorian Parliament House? Oh, it was so hard. So they put in a temporary elevator just so I can get in. So I've been I was the first wheelchair user um, to go speak in Vic Parliament. Um, so they put in some temporary measures, but you know I still got stuck in doorways. Um, I wanted to take a photo of a door so that I could actually send it to the people who manage the building and I got extremely told off. Um, mm. You know, it's just, it, it's very interesting, the society that we live in still. Yeah, absolutely. So accessibility is obviously a really massive issue, just getting around day to day, it seems. But do you think there are any other big issues that are facing wheelchair users at the moment? Oh, you know, we can't even get around our own city half the time. You know, we're trying to, um, you know, trying to get an Uber, trying to get taxis. They cost extreme amounts of money that often disabled people can't actually afford very well. Um, and there is a cost that you're straight away required to actually pay as a wheelchair user um, that a lot of people don't actually realise. Um, and where people also don't realise is we can't use public transport. Um, mm. It's not particularly easy at any rate unless you want to be waiting for hours um, as buses and trams and stuff go straight past you. Um, yeah, I could seriously keep going about all the issues, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know there's, there's a real push um, at the moment to make trams and public transport wheelchair accessible um, because I think there was uh, a, a policy where they were going to make sure every tram was wheelchair accessible by the end of 2022 but we're obviously not on track for that which is disappointing um, yeah. but there are many of course many movements um, to make society more inclusive for people such as yourself so how can non-disabled allies best support the disabled community? You know, the best thing that anyone can ever do is listen, and that goes for any community. But, you know, going with the disabled community, how can I help? What can I do? And actually truly listen to their response. If someone with a disability is saying, this is how you can help, don't say, okay, but I'm going to do this instead. Actually try doing their suggestions. They know what's you know, best for them. If they don't say, 
if they say, you know, don't help, actually listen to that. Um, for instance, you know, you don't push a wheelchair without that person's consent. That's actually called assault. Um, if you're touching someone's wheelchair and you've said don't touch it, it's actually assault. Mm. Um, especially if you actually haven't listened to what they've said and they don't need help. Um, if you have a friend and they suggest learning sign language to help them or to learn about their disability, actually, you know, try doing that. Um, there's just some great ways to be there, to listen to what the individual person needs because everyone's unique. Just, yeah, be there, listen. Mm. And I'm wondering as well, there's, there's so many things people can do, but do you have any kind of resources just off the top of your head that might be useful for our listeners to go and visit? Yeah, of course. So there's some great disability advocates on, you know, if you've got social media, um, there's some great ones on Instagram. Um, you just need to type in disability and there's going to be all sorts of people that pop up. Mm. Yakvik, um, that's Y-A-C-Vic. They've got some great resources, as as does WIDA, Y-D-A-S. Um, they've got some really great resources on disability, what disability means, um, the social model of disability. Um, and, yeah, they've got some really great things about all types of disabilities, how to listen, um, how to be an ally to people with disabilities, and so many more that I've probably forgotten at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely the, I know the Youth uh, Disability Advocacy Service does some great online training um, called Together Training, uh, so that's definitely one you can hop on. But Jesse, thank you so much uh, for your time today, and happy Disability Pride Month. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Alrighty, that was Jesse Hooper there speaking on Disability Pride Month. Um, if you want to learn more about Disability Pride as an active 3CR listener, you can also tune into Raising Our Voices on 3CR. It's been running for 35 years um, and it's a disability self-advocacy program. So it's every Wednesday here on 3CR. I'm not sure if it's every Wednesday, but um, head to the website 3cr.org.au and there will definitely be more details on that. Um, but I think we're approaching the end of our show now. Yeah, yeah, that's the right, excuse me, that's right, the end of our show. Um, and yeah, as we were saying earlier today, um, it is NADOC week this week. And um, as part of 3CR's NADOC week broadcast, uh, we do a special broadcast called Beyond the Bars, which um, you may have heard of, mm. <laughs> um, where we go into, yeah, prisons all around Victoria um, and broadcast live um, from inside the prison. So that's on today. Um, it's starting at 11 o'clock. Um, they'll be broadcasting from Fulham Correctional Centre near Sale. Um, and then at 1 o'clock, they're going to switch over to Lodden Prison um, in Castlemaine. Um, and, yeah, it's a really um, cool broadcast, which I think is pretty unlike um, anything else on Australian radio. Um, you're hearing directly from prisoners, some of its uh, stories, some of its songs, um, and, yeah, as we were saying earlier, sharing experiences. Um, so I encourage people to tune into that today at 11 o'clock. Yeah, and uh, shout out to Robbie Thorpe for all of his hard work um, getting that on the air and also all of the other broadcasters who are working on that project. Um, it's definitely a lot more effort, I think, than people realise to get into these prisons 
and get those voices on the air. Definitely, yeah, especially after um, COVID. I think it's a mm. lot more logistics, um, but yeah. Absolutely, um, and, and some other ways we can show up um, for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There is a march this Friday, um, I believe, at 12 o'clock from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service um, into the city. I think there's an event uh, at 10 o'clock as well on that same day. Um, but it's it's absolutely um, something we can all get behind. They do need some volunteers as well. So we might pop some links uh, in our show notes if you want to hop on to the 3CR website. Excellent. And what's the name of the march and what's it called? Um, yeah, it is called the, the Vic NADOC 2022. I think it's just the Vic NADOC march, but it's, uh, yeah, this Friday, July 8th, um, once again from 12pm at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. Sorry, I think I said legal service before. It's the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service um, on Nicholson Street in Fitzroy. Um, and I think that's, yeah, a march into Nam. So get behind it. Excellent. And um, while we're on the topic of uh, notices, <laughs> I just wanted to give a quick mention to Fight for Survival, um, which is an exhibition which we've covered a couple of times on Wednesday Breakfast, actually. Um, so it looks at the story of the landmark movement in Australian history um, when communities united to save Victoria's treasured Northland Secondary College um, and their very grassroots fight against the decision to shut down the school. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty cool story, um, which we've, as I said, looked at before. I think it was the only school to successfully get uh, reopened, so it really uh, shows power of the people. Um, there are a lot of, yeah, really incredible incredible people involved there. So we've spoken to Claire Land on Wednesday breakfast before and um, about a month ago, Claudia spoke with Linthorpe. Um, and this weekend is the last weekend. You can get along and see it at the Melbourne Museum. Um, so if you have the chance, I encourage you to do so. Mm, I definitely have been meaning to go see that exhibition for a while now because we've done so much on it and I still haven't gone. That's your chance. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. And there's there's so much else happening here around Nam um, for NADOC week. There's a lot of dance parties. I'm just having a scroll through time out. You can head to Abbotsford for a NADOC week uh, dance party. Um, there's electric fields are doing a concert um, in Melbourne here. There's also a First People's Service at the Shrine of Remembrance, um, which was from... July 3rd to 10th. Um, there's a free exhibition there. Um, so much going on. So I think this is our week, um, w which we should be doing advocacy every week, but in particular this week to get behind Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander people, um, not only through celebration, but also through remembrance and social cause. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that brings us to the end of our show today on 3CR. Thank you so much for joining us. And up next is Stick Together and make sure you're tuning in to Beyond the Bars today at 11 o'clock. CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.